Brian already mentioned this, but uh, my wife and I, Trisha and I, had an opportunity to go to Ethiopia with Brian. And what made the trip even more special when we went to encourage Craig and Allison Fowler is that uh, my brother and sister-in-law, who are medical missionaries in the Philippines, joined us there in Ethiopia to be part of the healthcare part of it. That meant that uh, Trisha and I had a chance to be with Scott and Cindy uh, each day for over a week. And I treasure every opportunity I get to be with my brother. My brother and I were standing uh, talking one day after one of the sessions, and I was explaining to him that this passage of Scripture um, was causing me to do a lot of thinking because we had just been walking through a small village all week. And the passage we're going to look at today in John 2 takes place in a small village. And uh, I, as I told him about that, he said, you know, Cindy and I had a chance to go to the Holy Land this past year. And he said one of the things that was the biggest takeaway for us is how puny, how podunk where Jesus walked is. He said the Sea of Galilee, you can see from north, south, east, west, you can see the edge of the water. He says where you and I go at Green Lake, Wisconsin is bigger than that. And he said that the villages were, were small. You walk all these places. So he and I were comparing notes because all week long we walked in these sandals. And I mean, our feet were like filthy by the time we got done. It made even more sense why people in Jesus' day would wash each other's feet before dinner. And all that stuff was going through our mind. And you know what hit me? What hit me is that the story we're about to read, this historical event, this wedding in Cana, it took place in an out-of-the-way place. But that doesn't mean that Jesus isn't still doing some of his most glorious work there. And today, what I hope you'll see is the big idea of this message today is about obedience. It's about what does it look like when you and I trust and obey Jesus? What can happen in our everyday lives? We may feel like we're in an out-of-the-way place. We may feel like we're nobody special. We may feel like our lives, I mean, how do they compare in light of the whole huge world that we're in? But Jesus Christ has come to make a difference, and that's what we're learning as we encounter Christ in this series. Now, if you look up here, you'll see that we have these banners. And I don't know if you've been paying attention, but the, they started like this one on the right. But each week, uh, we have two artists in our church who every week are going to add something to these banners. We're not sending them out to have them reprinted or anything. They're painting on these. And so I'm excited to see the picture that represents this week. And again, if you, if, if you want to, you can always, it's legal to step up here after the service and look at these. But these banners are going to go with us all 40 weeks of encountering Christ. And I'm just thrilled that artists in our church, are, their gifts are being used in that way to help us think about encountering Christ. Now, if you would, if you'll turn your Bibles to chapter 2 in John's Gospel. Again, if you're new to the Bible, it's about three-fourths of the way back where you'll find Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the New Testament. We're studying John these days. And if you didn't bring a Bible, don't feel embarrassed about that. We have red ones in the seat rack in front of you. We'd love it if you take one out. We'd love it if you bring a Bible every week with you in this series. I'm told that we now have three different versions of red Bibles circulating out there in those seats. So somewhere between page 700 and 800 is John 2, Cana. And if you can multitask, what I want you to see as you're following along in the notes is this about this part of the Bible. Jesus reveals his glory with his first miraculous sign. If you're following along, Jesus reveals his glory with his first miraculous sign. 
Some of you remember the first week we looked at John 1.14. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who has come from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so we've seen His glory. And now, what does that mean when, when people saw His glory? Well, this passage talks about that some more. In fact, if you look at the first gray box there in the notes, I've listed the last verse of our passage today first. Okay, so do you mind reading verse 11 with me out loud? What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. This idea of he revealed his glory, he showed his glory. But I got to be honest with you. Whenever I read a sentence like that, I picture something spectacular, huge, big lights. But instead, he reveals his glory in this village called Cana. Cana is about four miles north of Nazareth. And some of you were here last week when Steve taught about the first five disciples of Jesus. And you may remember that there was a man named Nathaniel that said, Nazareth, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Jesus, eventually, when he was introduced to Nathaniel, Nathaniel said, I take all that back. You're amazing. And Jesus says, if you think it's amazing, these first few moments of us getting to know each other, hang with me because you're going to see even more amazing things. And it doesn't take long. It's the very next chapter. Now Nathaniel, one of the five disciples, is with Jesus in his hometown. This is where he would have had his yearbook signed. This is where he was used to everything. Okay. Now, he's back there, and this Jesus is back in his own stomping grounds as well. But I want to take just a minute to talk to you about a back story that's going on here. When he says miraculous sign or sign, that's not an accident. This is going to be a major theme in John's gospel. So some of you, you're all interested, as many of us are, at getting to know John's gospel better. So what I did today is I want to talk to you just for a minute about this idea of this first miraculous sign and what a sign is for. So if you're following along in the notes there, notice that a sign is something that points beyond itself to help us find what's important. A sign is something that points beyond itself to find what's important. Uh, Years ago, when I went to Pike's Peak out in Colorado, I remember looking at this sign that said 14,000 like 300 feet, you know, up and stuff like that. And it said that if I would keep taking this trail, it would take me to the top of Pikes Peak. Now, I could have just hugged that sign and said, this is exciting. Or I could have gone up to Pikes Peak. See, the sign was only meant to help me get to Pikes Peak. And a lot of times, as we saw with John the Baptist, it's not so much about John the Baptist as what he's pointing to. It's not just about the sign. A lot of people want signs, but they're into signs for sign's sake. Signs are meant to get us beyond the sign. And this is what John wants us to see. So, are you willing, if I, if I take just three minutes to do something real quick, would you turn your notes over on the back? You guys know that I could spend way too much time on this subject, so I'm actually doing this so you don't have to go through that torture, okay? Here it is, eight miraculous signs in John's Gospel. John, in the first 12 chapters, is going to mention seven signs or miraculous signs. And each time, as you'll see there, it's pointing to Jesus as the Christ or the Messiah, God's one and only Son. Now, underneath that second line, I've put a third small line in parentheses of all the places in John's gospel where he uses this word sign or miraculous sign. There's a lot of debates going on in this whole gospel uh, with people that Jesus interacts with. 
And so just notice that that sign idea is going to be really big. Now, I've listed eight signs because really John's gospel includes these. You need to know under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that John's gospel is different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke in this way. They may talk about miracles, but John wants us to know that he has handpicked seven specific signs, including the eighth one, so that we might be able to find out who Jesus really is. In fact, sign number one, if you're looking there, says Jesus turns water into wine. This is the only time this miracle, this sign, is listed in the four Gospels. The other Gospels don't have this story of the wedding at Cana, but John does. And again, you'll see all the different ones that we're going to be coming to as we study. But I need your help with sign number eight. I've listed there that Jesus rises from the dead. And that is without question the greatest sign of all, that he is the Son of God and without comparison, without rival. But it's not completely accurate in the way I want it to be. What you need to write, if you would, please, is Jesus dies and he rises from the dead because it's a package deal. His cross and his resurrection are the ultimate sign that Jesus is like no other religious leader, like no other person that's ever walked the earth. He stands alone as the one and only anointed one from God. And so that's there. Now, I told you the first week, but I want to remind you again this week that right below that in the gray box, John tells us the reason why he picked these miraculous signs to share with us. And he also tells us why he wrote the whole book of John in the first place. So would you read it with me out loud, please? Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. In other words, he says, I'm sharing these miraculous signs with you so that hopefully you'll follow that sign like you would all the clues of a treasure hunt so you get to the treasure. And when you get to the treasure, that you'll embrace the treasure. That's why I'm sharing all this with you. Here's the honest truth. These signs have been and may be in the days ahead be wasted on us. Some people say, hey, I don't care how many you list. I don't believe Jesus is God. Some people will say, ah, I still have, you know. And John just says, I want you to know why I've shared these. Is that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have what in his name, friends? Life. Life to the full. So that's a little bit on the signs. We're going to come back to that in future weeks. But I just wanted to make sure you understood that basis there of when he talks about that phrase in verse 11. Now, what I want you to see this morning as we talk about obedience is that in this encounter, if you're following along in the notes, Mary and the servants have a decision to make. They have a decision to make. And they're not the only ones. According to why John wrote this gospel, you and I have a decision to make. When we read and we hear about this miraculous sign, we've got to determine whether or not it's going to point us to Christ, whether or not it's going to lead us into believing that Jesus is who he says he is, or whether it's going to be wasted on us. And the first disciples we already saw in verse 11, they made their decision. They put their faith in Jesus after seeing this miraculous sign. The question is, what will we do? What are we going to do as a result of meeting here today? Are we just doing church or are we going to actually encounter Christ and move closer towards him? But would you mind praying with me and then we're going to unpack this wedding at Cana. 
Oh, Lord, I need you, Lord, not just because of jet lag and things like that, but because I know that I don't have the power to change anybody's life. But I thank you that you do. I thank you that your word is living and active and powerful than a two-edged sword. And I pray that right now you'll take our study of the word of God together and you will speak to every heart here that we'll know exactly what you're saying to us and that we'll be responsive in our hearts to you. For Jesus' sake, amen. Okay, this wedding encounter is found in verses 1 through 11 of chapter 2. Before I actually read about it, can I just read some background to you about a wedding? A lot of times when we think of a wedding, nowadays, weddings last how long in the United States usually? 20 minutes, 30 minutes, maybe an hour. And then maybe there's a reception afterwards. But at the most, most of the time, it's only a weekend long or just one day. But in the Middle East, weddings weren't like that at all. They, they involved the entire village. They were the high moments of the whole year for these people in these out-of-the-way villages. They were huge things. And so we need to make sure that we understand and appreciate that background. So let me read what Leon Morris wrote. The day of the wedding was a Wednesday if the bride was a virgin and a Thursday if she was a widow. The wedding was often held in the evening because there were processions and these were more spectacular if they were held by torchlight. First, the bridegroom and his friends went in procession to the home of the bride. The bridegroom and a few of those close to him went into the bride's home while the others waited outside. The actual ceremony, whatever its form, took place inside the bride's home. Then there was another procession, this time with all those interested going to the home of the bridegroom. Uh, Someone has said, by the way, that in the United States, the phrase is, here comes the bride. In uh, the Middle East, it was, here comes the groom. And that's because the groom was primarily responsible for putting on this huge, lavish marriage feast. The parents of the groom took care of that in the Middle East. Here, the marriage feast was held. This was a very important part of the proceedings. It was often a lengthy affair and might go on for a week, seven days. It was important that everything be done properly. One thing that seems strange to us is that there was a strong element of reciprocity. If one gave a feast of such and such a quality and quantity when his son was married, he was entitled to an equivalent when his neighbor's son was married. If the neighbor did not provide it, He could actually be taken to court, fined, and even in some cases sued. A wedding feast was not simply a social occasion, but involved a legal obligation. This is important for us to understand because it is quite possible that the bridegroom of John 2 and his family were financially unable to provide all that was necessary for the wedding feast. It is often said that it is unlikely that Jesus would have performed a miracle like this simply to rescue people from a minor social embarrassment. But it may well have been much more than that. It may be that Jesus rescued a young couple from financial liability that could have crippled them economically for years. And I found that very helpful as we now read these verses. So would you follow me as we walk through? And um, I'll read the first few verses. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Again, Nathaniel's hometown. Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Let me stop. A lot of people believe that because Jesus grew up in Nazareth, Cana was nearby, that the reason why it gives these details of his mother and him being invited 
is because it's very likely that either these people were very close friends or they were even members of the extended family of that party. And so uh, notice one thing here. It does not say Jesus' mother's name. It never does in John's gospel. In fact, she's only mentioned two times, here and in John 19 at the cross. And what's going on there is that you may remember that Jesus makes sure that his mother is taken care of by the disciple whom Jesus loved, which is the code name for John in John's gospel. And a lot of people believe that the reason why Mary's name and John's name are not mentioned is because many years later, after they had been living together, he'd been taking care of her. When this gospel was written, they agreed that they did not want their names to be important. They wanted Jesus to be important. And so she's referred to as Jesus' mother. And notice again, how do we think they might have been related? The next verse kind of helps us. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Now, most scholars believe the reason why she knew this is because she may well have been part of the host that were hosting the wedding. Therefore, before this became scandalized throughout the whole wedding, uh, they, she went to Jesus and said, they just ran out of wine. This is inside information. And so she goes to Jesus. And when she goes to Jesus and says this, um, you, you get the impression, she says, I was there when you were born. I heard all those unbelievable things about you. And I know that you like know how to take care of situations like this. Okay? So what I want you to see if you're following along in the notes is this, is that this wedding encounter begins with a problem or a crisis. They have no more wine. And wine was, again, there was only two things to drink in those days, water or wine. And again, this was part of the celebration. Most rabbis said that wine symbolized joy. And so what they're really saying is joy's about to leave this wedding. We're in trouble. That celebratory spirit, the obligation we have socially, this is a problem. The next thing I want you to see if you're following along in the notes, though, is that Mary goes to Jesus, but he doesn't respond as she hopes. Mary goes to Jesus, but he doesn't respond as she hopes. Look at verse 4. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my time has not yet come. Now that last phrase, my time has not yet come, in the life group questions this week, I actually list all the times that Jesus refers to his time, his hour in John's gospel. And you can look those up and you'll be able to figure out what he's referring to. But many times when we read this, we go, man, is Jesus getting rude with his mom? I mean, this sounds like he's pushing her back and saying, stop bothering me. But that's not the tone. Although it feels that way in English and Aramaic, it was really what's really going on here is Jesus saying, mom, I don't think you fully understand what's happening, but our relationship is about to change. All these years now, the first 30 years of my life, especially since dad died, I've been helping take care of you. And now my ministry, my earthly ministry that I was born for is starting. Therefore, I can't just do everything when we talk. I need to make sure my timetable is on the Father's timetable. I need to make sure that everything I do, I'm not saying I won't get involved. I'm just saying, you know, do you understand how things are changing? And so this kind of response, I'm sure, had to confuse Mary a little bit at first. But what I want you to notice is the next line is, is that even when she doesn't understand, Mary trusts Jesus. She trusts Jesus. How do we know? 
Read verse 5 with me as it's listed in the notes in that second gray box so we can all read them together out loud. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. This is a person that says, I don't know what's going to happen, but be ready. Do whatever he tells you because I have a sense he's about to do something. I may not understand what he's about to do. I may not understand how it's going to go down. I'm just telling you, I've been around him for 30 years. I've heard all the stuff said about him. Get ready to do whatever he tells you. Now, I want to stop here for a second because some of you grew up Catholic. Some of you may have family members and friends who you love dearly who are Catholic. And you may be aware that in the Catholic Church, there is a practice of praying to Mary, of praying to the saints rather than directly to Jesus. And some people will say, where does the biblical basis come for that practice? Well, the Catholic Church has often pointed to this chapter right here, being that the idea, as they have interpreted, is is that if you have a problem, don't go to Jesus, go to his mother, because she'll talk to him and change his mind. Do you, you know what I'm saying? And the idea is, is that it, you, you're not worthy to come to Jesus directly, so go to his mother or go to one of the saints. And friends, all I want to say real carefully is this. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16 says to every person that's humble enough to accept it, that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted and suffered as we have yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace boldly that we may find help in our time of need. Go straight to Jesus. He is the one. Okay. And the other thing I want you to see is that although Mary was a blessed woman, she was still a human being, not equal with God. And so look here at Luke 11, what it says. Jesus once had this happen in the crowd. As Jesus was saying these things, a woman in the crowd called out, Blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. Notice what Jesus says. He replied, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and what? Obey it. You want to know the blessed person? The blessed person is the one who obeys it. Don't get all caught up and hung up in these other things. Don't go to intermediaries and saints and all these other people. Come to Jesus. Go to Jesus just like Mary did. Okay? So this next thing I want you to see is that even when Jesus' instructions seem crazy, the servants obey. Even when Jesus' instructions seem crazy, the servants obey. Let me read uh, verse 6. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. So in other words, they are made of stone, not clay, because clay was impervious to uncleanness. And so they were made of stone. They, they were at least this tall. They might have been taller, but they held 20 to 30 gallons. And it tells us that they were there for ceremonial washing. You see, over time, there were Jewish people and religious leaders that had created a man-made system where now you had to go through all these ceremonial washings, all these rituals before you ate and before you did different things. The Bible didn't say you had to do these things. They made these up. But they thought this will make us more holy and more pure. And so it's interesting that this miracle takes place with six of these. Jesus sees these here and he goes, okay, they're standing nearby. Notice what he says if you're following along. It says, he said, verse 7, he said to the servants, fill the jars with water so they filled them to the brim. Now that first part wasn't tough, was it? Even a small child would understand that instruction of just fill it up all the way to the brim. So good so far. But one reason why he probably had it filled to the brim is so that no one would be able to say later this was something that got spiked. It wasn't a miracle. He wanted to make sure they knew this was water all the way to the top. And then it's the second part 
in verse 8 where things get a little sticky. It says, Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And they did so. Now, picture this. You got it all full, and you know you're about to take this to the master of the banquet. So you put some out, you take it here, and you're going, Okay, I'm about to take a glass full of water to the master of the banquet, and I have no idea why Jesus is asking me to do this. Okay? But they did what he told them to do. And somewhere between that water jar and the master of the banquet, the water turns to wine. Some people from time to time ask me, Jeff, do you believe this stuff? Or like you like suspend your intelligence? Friends, I think it's recreational activity for Jesus to do something like this. I think he's more full of authority than we can possibly imagine. I don't think this is too difficult for him. And I think he wanted to show his power in this way so that we would know he, we can trust him. And the master of the banquet, when he tastes this wine, what does he say? If you follow along there, the master of the banquet, it says, tasted the wine, the water that had uh, been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much wine. But you have saved the best till now. And if you're following along in the notes, the master of the banquet says this powerful sentence. You have saved the best till now. Over the years, most people have wondered if this whole story is in the Bible so that we can say, it's fine to drink it up. Okay? And the Bible does not anywhere forbid drinking, but it strongly, strongly, strongly discourages and forbids drunkenness. And we live in a culture that now gets drunk recreationally. For fun, that would be a complete misunderstanding of what was going on at this wedding party. The master of the banquet is not saying, you, you know, you waited till people were soused to bring out the best wine. That's not what he's saying. He says after people have had so much wine that their palate is no longer as sensitive and alive as it would be with a first glass, you're bringing out the best that makes people go, the party's getting better. The party, the quality is just continuing. Wow. And so Jesus, when he does this, Sometimes people have struggled. Some of you come from alcoholic backgrounds where your family or you have struggled with that and you go, what What do I do with a story like this? I know some people have tried to justify certain things that are against the spirit of what Jesus has. I read this story this week of a drunken coal miner who was converted and became a, a witness for Christ. One of his friends tried to trap him by asking, do you believe that Jesus turned water into wine? He said, I certainly do. And in my house... He has turned wine into furniture, decent clothes, and food for my children. Praise his name. You guys, we can celebrate in certain ways like that, but the idea always is to celebrate in a way that's the right spirit. The Bible says whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And so as we look at this, what do we do? What's the big idea here? Why was this sign? Why did it happen? Well, verse 11 tells us. We've already read it. But what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. They put their faith in him. So if you're following along in the notes, this first sign leads his disciples to put their faith in Jesus or to believe in him. I want to stop and just say I think it's absolutely incredible that Jesus decided 
to turn six stone jars into wine. What's the, what's, what's the meaning behind that sign? Here's what I think it is. The old way of following God, where you try and stay clean in your own strength and power. It's going to run out. It's empty. It's lacking. But I have come to bring a much better way to live. I have come to bring the best. And in the John's Gospel, what we're going to see in the next chapter is that in John 3, he's going to tell a religious leader, unless you are born again of the Spirit of God, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. In John 6, he's going to say, the Spirit gives life, flesh gives birth to flesh. In John 7, he's going to say that the Holy Spirit can become like rivers of water welling up in your life. In John 14, 15, 16, the night before he's crucified, he says, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit who is just like me. Same Holy Spirit's been living in me. Now to live in you so that you can have my spirit and my power to work in your life so that you don't have to be constantly trying to wash your hands and go through all kinds of dead rituals and try and just live your life in such a way you keep your nose clean but don't really know God, I want you to know a better way. And ultimately, this all took place because some people trusted and obeyed Jesus. Years ago, I had the privilege of learning this song. I've never been able to get it out of my head. When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. As we do His good will, He abides with us still and to all who will trust and obey. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And so the five words I'd love for you to carry out with you this morning are listed there. What Mary said in that second grade box, here they are. Do Whatever he tells you. Will you say that with me a couple times so we can all get it together? Do whatever he tells you. One more time. Do whatever he tells you. What would happen this morning if you walked out of here and you began to do what those servants did? What would it look like in your life? In the out of the way places of your life? In those places that you think are insignificant and don't really matter? What if you began to do whatever he tells you at your job, in your home, in your friendships, at your school? What happens if you began to do whatever he tells you? This is the idea that I want to bring home. And here's where I get it if you're following along. When it says the disciples put their faith in Jesus, this doesn't mean that they intellectually agreed with Jesus or that they went, wow, that's emotionally moving. Thanks a lot for doing that. That's what most Americans have reduced faith to. This kind of feeling or thought. And friends, I'm not saying faith never involves those things. But faith is much, much more than that. That is a terrible version of faith compared to what the Bible says. We learned this when we studied James. So here's the definition of faith that I want to give you this morning. Faith means to trust God enough you obey Him. Trust and obey. For there is no other way. Trust and obey. Trust Him enough that you obey Him. Pastor Steve years ago told the story. Of the man, the French tightrope walker, who connected a tightrope across the Niagara Falls. And he did all kinds of things, including pushing a wheelbarrow and even uh, potatoes in that wheelbarrow. And then he came back and says, who believes that I can push a human being across 
in this wheelbarrow. People went crazy. You're amazing. Sure you can. He said, who will get in? No one wanted to get in. You know what that means? No one really believed he could do it. Until you and I trust and obey. We're blowing smoke. And the disciples put their faith in Christ. That means that they said, we may make mistakes at this. We may not always get it right. Here's our commitment. We have decided we will trust and obey you wherever it takes us. So help us, God. And now, some of you are going, this is like extra credit Christianity. Like, how do we get talking about this? I like the Christian version that just said, think of Jesus as a nice Savior. Here's why it's important, friends. If you're following along in the notes, here's why trusting and obeying is so important. Because life is waiting on the other side of obedience. Life is waiting on the other side of obedience. When John writes and says, but I have shared these particular miraculous signs with you so that you may believe, that you may put your faith in, so that you may trust and obey Jesus. And by doing that, you may find life in his name. Jeremy started this service by talking about the struggle he and Laura went through of whether or not they would do whatever Jesus told them to do. And some of you are saying, now, I'm a little bit confused on that because like some people say they're doing what God tells them to do and they're blowing up things, killing people. Okay? I just need to clear this up. Jesus didn't tell them to do that. Okay? Bad pizza, some kind of bad idea in their head, but that's not the same. Here's the deal. Most of the time, we know exactly what Jesus is telling us to do. That's not the issue. Like Brian said, it's, it's hard. It's like, what if, what if, what about, what about, what about? We have all this stuff going through our heads. You know what I'm talking about? And so this whatever Jesus tells you to do. So they made those steps and they talked about how they didn't get it all perfect. It wasn't easy, but they took that step. There was a couple in our church that a few weeks ago when we talked about steward, and we talked about what it would look like if we actually did our money and our finances God's way, what it would look like. And they had already been talking about the fact that since she was no longer working, they probably needed to downsize. But she loved her house and she loved the neighborhood and she loved where her kids might be able to go to school. And so this was a struggle. So she came into the message that day. And as she was listening to 10, 10, 80 plan, she realized that her husband was right. They weren't giving the full tithe. They weren't saving. They weren't doing things God's way. They were trying to somehow make it work. And she left that and they had a conversation. And a month later, they put their house up for sale. Yesterday, I talked to her on the phone as she was packing. Because four days after they put their house up for sale, and after their family thought they were crazy for downsizing, they were able to sell their house. They found a house that has half the size of the mortgage. And they found a place they think their kids are going to be able to do okay. And here's the thing. It didn't take away all their questions. But they're more alive than they've ever been before. I don't want to sugarcoat this. Brian told you we went over to Ethiopia, and I hope you don't have any sense that we're like more brave than other people. The truth is our knees were knocking just like yours would be probably. When we got over there the first few days, Brian got into a sleep. He gave me permission to share this. He got into a sleep deprivation cycle, and his stomach was so messed up that he, like for two and a half days, we were actually nervous that he was going to be okay. As far as just, you know, being in his right mind and everything. We prayed. He told me later that those two and a half days, as hard as they were, welded him to Jesus Christ in a way that as he prayed in his tent, he saw the Lord lift him up. And he got an email from Sarah, his wife, that said, you are supposed to be there. 
And when he read that, it reminded him, I, I decided to obey. I will trust and obey. And I'm telling you what, in like 10 hours, he bounced back and he was like on fire for Jesus. You would have been proud of him. But I don't want to sugarcoat this because here's the truth. The Bible says in Hebrews 11, that the, the faith chapter, that some people trusted in Jesus Christ and he helped them be saved from the lion's den. He helped them be saved from the sword. But then in verse 35, it says, still others were fed to the lion. Still others were sawed in two. Still others went through really difficult things. So I don't want to be a pastor that stands up and says, you just trust and obey Jesus and it'll get so good for you. But what I want to say is this. When you're obeying Jesus, even if it's hard, you will find yourself saying, I am still more alive than I would be if I wasn't obeying Jesus right now. And friends, I pray you believe me on this. I pray you believe the disciples. But this is what it means. This is what it looks like. There was a lady that also, besides what you read about in Trisha on the back of the bulletin, there was a lady that came up to me a few weeks ago and she told this story. She sensed that she's supposed to go on a mission trip to Thailand. But she's scared of flying. She's afraid of all the dangers that come with the sex traffic trade and all that there in Thailand. But she cannot get this $8 billion scourge out of her heart. And so as she began to pray about Thailand, she said it was crazy. She'd be standing in the kitchen. She'd turn over a coffee mug and it would say, Made in Thailand. She would see all these things, Made in Thailand. Her husband's clothes, she was ironing them, Made in Thailand. Then she'd play apples to apples. And guess what card she'd get? Bangkok. And she goes, what's going on? So she said, Lord, I'll go to that information meeting. She went to the information meeting. Ten days after she went to the information meeting, as she shared with friends what she sensed Jesus was asking her to do, all the money for a mission trip was, was, was given. And now she's going to take that trip. And now the, the adventure is ahead of her. I imagine she's going to do it with her knees knocking. But she will be more alive than she has ever been before. Because she trusted and obeyed. Life is waiting on the other side of obedience, friends. So here's the two questions I want to ask. And then I want to share a story with you as we close. Lord, will this sign be wasted on me or lead me to trust you? You've all heard this sign of Jesus turning water into wine. And, and John 20, 29 says, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. There is a blessing waiting for us, even if we didn't witness that miraculous sign. And Jesus wants us to know, will this sign help you trust me more? Will it point you to our obedience with me or not? The second thing is, Lord, I will do whatever you're telling me to do. I will do the whatever you're telling me to do. Some of you know I've been messing. Uh, uh, I've been not feeling real hot and I've been dealing with jet lag here, as can happen. This morning, about three o'clock, I woke up and I. I had this thought that I haven't had, so you'll have to decide if I had bad food last night or this is Jesus, okay? But I, I sensed that I was supposed to share a story that I haven't shared for several years. But it was this story that rocked my world when I was at an intersection of obedience a number of years ago. And I love this story because this story helped me see how important trusting and obeying Jesus is. So I'm going to read it and again, follow along if you would with me. And this was shared by a pastor in Chicago who loves to sail. There's a harbor in the town where I take my summer study break. I like, I like to run by it on Fridays because people will drive down to their sailboats that are tied to the docks in the harbor. I'll watch these people unload their coolers and their towels and their food and their drinks. And one couple 
will unload all that stuff on a Friday night. They'll spend from Friday night to Sunday night on their boat, never leaving the dock, never untying the ropes. They just spend the whole weekend there. They eat and they drink and they sunbathe. They listen to the radio. And then they pack all that stuff back up in their cars and drive home. The next day, someone at work asks them, hey, Phil, what did you do this weekend? And Phil says, we went sailing. Then the other couples come down and they unload their cars, stock their boats, and they get a little bored just tied to the dock. And so about mid-Saturday afternoon, they untie themselves carefully back out of the slip and they cruise around the harbor. There's a little restaurant down the river so they can tie up, go and have dinner. Some of them go out by the breakwater and look at the waves and the wind out there and they don't want any part of that. So they'll take a U-turn and they'll come back, tie up to the dock, load their stuff up on Sunday night, and they go to work on Monday morning and someone says, Tom... What did you do this weekend? And Tom says, we went sailing. And then there's always the individuals who come down and they unload their cars, stock their sailboats, and they throw the ropes off the boat there and leave them on the dock. And they head straight out toward open water. And they sail. They really sail. And they feel the wind in their face and the spray comes over the side and they can hear the rushing sound of water sliding alongside the hull. And the boat is heeling over and yeah, stuff gets spilled and there's the pitching and yawing and all that. But they see fabulous sunsets and these incredible sunrises and they have that exhilarating sense of freedom. And they're saying to themselves, this is sailing. And when they come back and they tie up at the dock and they pack their stuff on a sunny night and go to work on Monday morning and someone says, hey, Frank. What did you do this weekend? Frank says, I went sailing. Here's what he said. What I want to ask you, friends, is who went sailing? You know, some of you, he said, claim to be Christians. And you've never been sailing. You've got your little Bible. You say your little prayers. You keep your nose as clean as you can. You're not doing anybody any harm. You're not doing the kingdom any good. You're tied up next to the dock. It's all safe there. But you're really not telling the truth if you tell others you're sailing. And others of you are bold enough to actually motor around the harbor a bit. But I'll tell you what, you still have a hold of that wheel there. And if it looks like it's getting just a bit dangerous, you turn around and go right back to the slip because you don't want the open sea. And I just feel bad for all you Christians who have never been out in the open sea. Seas of faith where God is in control of your life when you feel the exhilaration of making progress outside the sight of land. I just feel bad for you because, you see, it's out on the open sea where you receive the biggest thrills in the Christian life. It's out there where your faith is really tested and your faith grows. It's out there where you experience miracles and answers to prayer. It's out there where the presence of Christ is so close and so real to you that you can't stop telling other people about it. If I could, he said, I would walk by all your boats this morning and cut the ropes. Because I know that three or four months from now, you'd come back and say, thanks for cutting my ropes. Thanks for pushing me out of the harbor. Because I've been sailing now. Those who sail, those who really trust Christ fully, who are out there taking risks and suffering losses, but feeling his presence. That's Christianity, friends. And I remember sitting in my chair that day, and I could not move. And I knew that I knew that I knew. I was going to trust and obey Jesus. So help me, God. This morning, I want to just give you a moment to bow your head, if you would. What's the whatever he's been maybe pointing out to you? Is there something that you know? Maybe you've known it for a long time. Maybe you're not sure. Maybe you're trying to figure it out with some wise Christian counsel. 
I had some people come up to me after the last few services and talk to me about the things that Jesus made laser sharp in their minds and they're wrestling with it. They're wrestling with whether or not to trust and obey. What is it for you? Years ago for me it was whether or not I'd break up with a girlfriend and follow Jesus. When I was a kid I remember it was whether or not I'd go back and tell the people whose window I had broken. Sometimes it's been a broken relationship. Sometimes it's been the way I handle my money or my time. What is it for you? Will you do whatever He tells you? I want to give you this moment that if you are willing, you can tell the Lord, yes, I will do it. No matter what it costs me, I'll do it. Because I believe that life is waiting on the other side of obedience. members of the prayer team would come down front and just be available here at the end of this service. Now I want to pray for all of you. Um, Please don't be confused. The band's going to play, I think, after this, or music's going to play, but it doesn't mean you have to stay. But as you walk out of here, church is over. You're still going to have to decide if you're going to do whatever He tells you. I pray you will. I know how hard it's been. I'm the last person that should probably be teaching on obedience. I have not done this perfectly. But here's one thing I know. Life is waiting on the other side of obedience. Let me pray. Now, Lord, thank you that you want to help us sail. That You want us to know a different life than the nominal, shallow Christian life that is being peddled in so many places, even by us sometimes. Help us, O Lord, help us, O Lord, to trust and obey you, to trust and obey you, for there's no other way to be happy in you than to do that. In your name we pray, amen. God bless you.